encouraged by that incredible singing that you gave to the Lord this morning. And uh, that's quite a dramatic introduction to our study, this bumper that we just did. But it's appropriate because of the dramatic letter that Jesus gives to the church in Revelation. If you have your Bibles, would you find Revelation chapter 2? Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to today read the letter that Jesus gave to the church at Thyatira, beginning of verse 18, Revelation chapter 2. And I'll go ahead and read, and we'll jump right into this study this morning. If you have your Bibles there and don't mind standing, let's stand and let's read this letter together. Revelation 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, and I will throw into the great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I'll give each of you according to your works. Verse 24, the encouragement. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord, and the church says, amen. amen. Thank you. Be seated. This is the church of Thyatira in Christ. They are in Christ or they live in the world. And like us, we are in Christ and we live in Clay County or wherever it is in Florida that you live, but your real location as a Christian is in Christ. And how is it that you live in Christ in a dark culture? And we have one. We have a dark culture and we're facing difficult days as Christians. And yet... Even though we live in a dark, dark culture and difficult days, we have so much encouragement from the Lord. This morning, what I want to do is give you that encouragement. I'm going to get to it as quickly as I can in the way of application. But here's the outline. Similar to the other letters, we're going to see the charge from our Lord, the commendation that he gave to the church at Thyatira, the confrontation that comes, but then the counsel in the form of encouragement. So that's our outline. And when we get to the counsel, we'll look at three ways to obey this letter, three application. So you'll know that's where we are going this morning, all right? Let's take a look at this, this church in this city. They're in Thyatira. It's just a little bit southwest of Pergamum. It is a city that's known for its industry, a city that was 
a marketplace city. It might be a place that people would travel in order to buy wholesale so that they could take back what they bought and sell retail. Thyatira was full of workers who worked in the leather industry and the kitchen supply industry and the copper industry, the leather goods industry. And they were known for a very particular way in which they dyed their clothes. There were red dyes that were very uh, prominent in, in there, and there was purple. Lydia was a woman that maybe you've heard of in Philippians chapter 16, who comes to know the Lord, who was a very successful businesswoman and sold extravagant clothing, dyed in purple, a dye made from mollusks. It was there that people would travel and buy, shop, spend time. That's what they were known for and not much else. They didn't have a lot of political cloud in the area. There's not much we know about this city, but they were definitely hard workers. We see that our Lord says here that He knows their works. If you look in verse 18, the Lord addresses them. He says, I'm the Son of God. It's the only place in the book of Revelation, by the way, if you want to make a mark here, that He's addressing Himself this way as the Son of God. And that he has eyes that burn with fire, and his feet are bronze. Those two imageries have to do with judgment. In other words, the Lord says, I'm, I'm God who sees every work that you do, and I judge those works. And workers would have really leaned into what was being said. Could you imagine this letter being read and uh, everyone grabbing each other's hands as they're listening to the the words being spoken, maybe a husband grabbing the, the hand of his wife, the one that's not pinching the children, telling them to pay attention, and that hand being calloused and hard and strong because he's a worker, and he hears the Lord say, I know your works. And then the commendation, you work hard and you work even harder than you did when you first began your Christian journey. This is a good testimony. You're not waning in your works. You haven't slowed down. You're not lukewarm when it comes to serving me. And I know your works. All of our works are going to be brought before the Lord. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible says, our work will be shown for what it is. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one according to what they have done. Our works are going to be tried. Right in the midst of Thyatira, like every other city, there would have been a seat known as the Bema seat, a judgment seat in which, in which trials took place, judgments were handed down. Jesus is going to one day sit on a Bema seat, and He's going to look at our works with His burning eyes that sees all the way to our hearts that go beyond the actual actions, but to the motives, the reason for what we've done. And the Bible in Jeremiah 17 says, the Lord searches the heart, He examines the mind. Imagine that today. The Lord is searching your heart and examining your mind. And why? to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, the Bible says, the Lord searches the heart and understands every desire and every thought. 
So we can't plead innocence when it comes to our lack of work or our work done for the wrong reasons in Proverbs 24, 12. But if you say, I didn't know about this, if you have children, you've heard that. But the Bible says, does not the Lord weigh the heart and perceive it? Does not the Lord know your life? Will he not repay everyone for what they have done? Well, he found here that the works of the Thyatirans were commendable. They were loving. They were loving the Lord more. They were not like the church at Ephesus who had left their first love and were working in spite of that. They were working but also loving the Lord. They were faithful. They were loyal. And they were patiently enduring and growing in their good works. Why are they commended for this? Because the type of works that the church at Thyatira were doing were not works that the culture could perform. These are the type of works that only are done in Christ for the glory of God to bring people to Jesus. These aren't just good works. This is not just doing good. These are doing the works of the Lord that in Ephesians chapter 2 says are prepared beforehand by Lord for us to walk in. And Jesus said we are to do these types of good works in order that people would see our good works and then glorify our Father who is in heaven. And in 2 Timothy, we have the scripture given to us so that we would be thoroughly furnished and equipped to do every good work of God. The Lord commends the church because they are doing good works in order that they might have a good testimony before the world. But like the other letters, there's a confrontation. Look at verse 20. And here's the confrontation. Though you're working hard, you have something I've got to deal with, and that is you tolerate, and did you notice that the text says that woman? That's a good way to put it. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Jezebel is infamous. She lived a thousand years before this letter was written to the Thyatirans, and was, was a woman who uh, was wicked and married a wimpy man. And that's a terrible combination, by the way. A wicked woman and a wimpy man. She was the daughter of uh, Ethbaal, who was the king of the Cyanesians in Tyre. He was a pagan, terrible, the Bible puts it this way, very evil, one of the most evil kings to have ever lived. He put people to death in order to get to his throne, and Jezebel followed suit. Ahab, the king of Israel, married this woman. And she brought idolatry into the land of Israel at a level they had not known. And Ahab abdicated his authority to Jezebel, who was very happy to take up authority and to rule a nation by using Ahab as a puppet king. She not only introduced idolatry into the land, but an immorality and a sexual perversion that had not been experienced up to this point of her rule as queen. The spirit of Jezebel then that is in the church at Thyatira, and did you notice that it's tolerated inside the church, is a spirit that accommodates idolatry and sexual immorality. It accommodates it. It's not to say that everyone in the church was involved in sexual immorality. That is certainly not the case. We're practicing 
these types of acts, but that they were accommodating, and that teaching was seducing the servants of the Lord. If you'll notice the text, and I think you need to underline this, seducing my servants. This is God saying, how would you tolerate someone who's seducing people who belong to me? It would be as if a father would, or a mother would allow someone to come and seduce their children under their watch. It should never happen. How is this happening? The identification of Jezebel is not just the woman who lived a thousand years. Now we're told there's a Jezebel in the church. It's most likely a pseudonym to describe a teacher who is a prophetess, most likely a prophetess, someone who says, I speak for God because a prophet is a spokesperson for God, a spokesman for God. And this is a woman who says, I speak for God. Or it's a group of people who have adopted this teaching and are identified by this woman, Jezebel. Why was a church pray for this type of seduction? I mean, you would think that no way in the world would a church be pray to someone who comes to say they speak for God, yet leads people to worship idols and practice sexual immorality or to accommodate that lifestyle within the church. Well, let me kind of bring you into the first century world of Thyatira and what little we know about it. And then you'll be able to see how it relates to us in our 21st century world. If you lived in Thyatira, remember, you most likely were a worker in some industry. To advance in your industry, it would be very important that you are part of a guild, a society, a union of types. The only way really to get work and to be promoting your work was to be a part of one of these societies. All of these societies had a demigod or some sort of figure god that was uh, their, their deity and to which they prayed to and sacrificed to and then gave honor to. It would have been very likely that if you were a Christian now and you've come out of this culture, that you were still a part of a guild, still part of a work society in order that you might put food on the table for your family and then show up at the meetings. And at the meetings, there would be likely a time in which a meal was prepared, a meal was presented, and then then before the meal, grace offered. Not like we would give grace. Not, not sitting down to pray before our meal to our God, but someone in the guild might stand up and say, we want to give thanks to the God of our guild, Apollos, who has strengthened our hands to do our work. We've offered our food to Apollos as a sacrifice, and now we'll enjoy. So as a Christian, there you are sitting. Do you bow your head when everyone else? Do you stand up and give homage to some false god? And then do you eat the food that's been sacrificed to this god because you're just told it was? You would stick out like a fly on a birthday cake, really. What are you going to do as a Christian? Are you going to accommodate and tolerate? This is the problem that Jezebel's bringing to the church, and with the problem comes a solution. You don't have to be so legalistic, Christian. You can't just offend the culture you live in. You can't offend the culture, or you'll never win the culture. You, ha- you can't just take your Sunday Christianity to the marketplace and expect to be a good witness for Christ. It's kind of that teaching. 
that tempted God's servants not to bow their knee to Jesus alone, but to succumb to the pressures of the society around them. I think if you're with me so far, you know that this is not just a first century problem. It is the problem for the lawyer in here who's being confronted with representing someone who's unethical. It is the problem of the student who goes to school and will stick out like a sore thumb if they stand up for what they believe. It's the problem of the businessman who says, I cannot operate with this ethic. I I can't serve in this environment. I, I cannot lower my standards and accommodate compromise just for the sake of a bottom line. It, it, it even goes to the person who's selling something on Facebook Marketplace who's at least honest enough to say, yeah, it, it really is not that great a product. The implication here was this. She was teaching that it was okay to accommodate culture in order to win culture. The problem is her teaching was not just about accommodation, but would lead to assimilation. And what is assimilation? It is morphing or converging with the culture. Why would Christians in the first century begin to assimilate back to a pagan culture that they come out of? I think Paul helps us in Galatians chapter 1 when he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. Why would you tolerate someone who is taking my servants away to serve the culture? Paul says it is the fear of man. The Bible tells us the fear of man will prove a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Oswald Chambers, who wrote the great devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, if you are familiar with Oswald Chambers, you know that he says things in remarkable ways. And he said this, the great thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. In Thyatira, there was this weird codependency with the culture, a desire to be liked, a desire to be wanted by the culture. But that compromise is like bamboo. I don't know much about bamboo, but Pat told me next door, don't plant it in your yard. So I wanted to buy some. He said, it'll take over. It shoots, runs underground, and it, you can't control it. That, well, that's compromise. You can't control it. Once you begin to compromise in one area, those shoots run underground and they affect every other area. And Thyatira, two areas in particular, idolatry and immorality. If you ever read the New Testament, you'll note not only there, but also in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that when you find idolatry, you will likely find immorality connected. Those two sins go together and they touch everything. Like bamboo, they run their course throughout all of life. Idolatry, why? What is idolatry? Well, idolatry is wanting what is not mine to be taken. Therefore, what I want or covet after is something that I pursue or serve. 
I find it interesting that you have Ten Commandments in the uh, book of Exodus that were given to Moses by God. And on the bookends, the first commandment is, thou shalt not have right, any other gods before me, or that would be idolatry. The, the last commandment is, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Why? Because that too becomes idolatry. It's when I want something that's not mine to take that leads to the idea here of a morality which is taking something that is not mine to be had. Paul puts it very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4. When he talks about immorality, sexual immorality, he says, this is the will of the Lord, God, even your sanctification, that is your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body. Do you hear this? Control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust of the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. We are told beforehand, solemnly warned by God, for God has not called you to impurity, but holiness. Therefore, therefore, whoever disregards this command, sexual immorality, does not disregard man, but disregards God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is why when a girl begins to worship the idea of a guy, she wants from him something that's not hers to take when that guy belongs to another woman. Pornography is that way. It is the idea, the thought that I can get something that is harmless when in fact it is not harmless to the person who is offering it, nor the one who's receiving it. Adultery, homosexuality are all sins of idolatry. It is seeking after something that's not mine to be had. This is why the spirit of Jezebel is so evil. Let me give you an illustration. So Jezebel, I told you, was an idolater and introduced immorality into her land. And she would do everything in her power to get what she wanted, even if it meant killing to get it. Her husband, Ahab, I told you he's a wimpy guy. If you read, go do that this week and just read. You want to read about a wimpy man, you can read about Ahab. He comes home, he's pouting, what's wrong? Jezebel's, what's wrong? What's wrong, baby? I saw this vineyard. This guy has it. He won't sell it to me, and I really want it. It's not how the ESV reads, but anyway, that's the picture. Jezebel's like, I'll get it for you. The guy's name is Naboth. She makes sure that he gets falsely accused of something so that he is killed, and then now gives the vineyard to her husband. This is what idolatry leads to. It, it can lead to, if you don't repent of it, of doing those things that you never thought you would do. Just ask David. It's hard to read about David. I love David. There he is at home, looking at a woman that's not his wife, and begins to desire what is not his to take. It's not his to take. It doesn't matter that you're the king. Bathsheba is Uriah's wife. But you know the story. He takes Bathsheba and 
The rest of the story that we don't often focus on is the fact that David then kills Bathsheba's husband. It's hard to believe that anyone could sink to the level David sunk to to take a hero in the kingdom and then send him off to battle and tell the captain when he's in battle, everyone would draw from Uriah so that he's killed. There he is defending the king in the kingdom and then looks around and he's abandoned in battle in order that he might die. I have to think somewhere along the line, Uriah understood maybe what was going on. This is what immorality leads to. It leads to a desire to worship sex and to anything possible to get it, even kill, to continue to have it. What was going on a thousand years before Thyatira, what was going on 2,000 years ago in Thyatira is very much alive in the spirit of Jezebel in America and the world today. We are such a sex-crazed society that we will kill in order to have it, even if it's a precious unborn child. But this isn't the revelation of Jezebel, and I'm grateful for that. (laughs) This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I can't wait to get to the encouragement. I had to slow down. I wanted to start with it. It's Father's Day. We're crying out loud, Scott. Look at Jesus. This is Revelation, verse 21. But Jesus is patient. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Where Jesus is here is so gracious. He is He's given her time. You would think that he would just step in, wipe her out, snuff her out, but instead, patient. Aren't you glad for the patience of the Lord? He punishes sinners, though. Look in verse 22 and 23. This is so dramatic. I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. Do you see the irony here, how that the Lord says, I see with my burning eyes and my feet of judgment to give to people according to their works. And since Jezebel and her disciples love to go to bed, that's what I'm going to give them. This is, you say, this is shocking. This is Jesus talking? If you've never read the New Testament much, you may think that Jesus is a warm and fuzzy, accommodating type of God. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16, John said, if you see your brother's sin and commits a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray that God will give him life. I refer to those who sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells the church at Corinth, you're, you're taking the communion and you're doing it in an unworthy fashion, and that's why some of you are sick and some of you are dying. The purpose of Jesus' punishment is this, verse 23, that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Here's the Old Testament way of saying that be sure your sin will find you out. 
The seducer and the seduced will be judged. The false teacher and those discipled by the false teacher and who adopt that teaching will be judged. There are no victims here, only offenders of a holy God. Well, that, that leads to verse 24. That's the, that's the counsel. Look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Notice this. There are some in the church and likely many who had not bought the teaching of Jezebel and were not accommodating the idea that you could be a Christian and sexually perverse at the same time. By the way, There's not one Christian in the church at Thyatira nor in the church of Hibernia that's not confronted with sexual temptation on a regular basis. But this is what God says to them. He says, you have not adopted the deep things of Satan. What a warning. Every time someone wants to take you to a deeper, deeper place, you better hold on, especially in the church. You better watch out. I have been in settings Literally, and there's a gentleman in our church who was with me in one of these settings where I was preaching, and while I was preaching, the musicians who were from a charismatic background were taking people into the woods in order to help them have a deeper experience with God. That'll bless you. Whatever these deeper things were, whether they knew they were from Satan or not, Jesus identifies them as the deep secrets of Satan. And the reminder is, look, I'm not going to lay any deep things on you, any, any things that are hard. I'm going to name the main things are going to be the plain things and the plain things, the main things. And he says the same thing that the council of Jerusalem said in Acts chapter 15 about the church. Hey, here's no burden, no legalistic requirement. I'm not being a fuddy-duddy. I'm telling you, here's what I want you to do. Hold on and continue in the things that you know. Don't commit idolatry. And don't commit sexual immorality. That's what Jesus says. No more burden. Verse 25. Only hold fast what you have till I come. That word hold fast there means to be strong. Be strong. Be strong. It reminds me of Elijah. If you never read the story, I'd go read 1 Kings 17 and 18. Read the story of a man who walks up onto a mountain and faces by himself the prophets of Jezebel and Baal, and he says to them, we're going to see whose God is God, and whoever God is will answer by fire. And whenever it was that Elijah prayed, God answered by fire. The false gods, when they prayed, nothing happened. Elijah, strong. Paul told us, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then just to balance that out, verse 14, let all that you be doing be done in love. Last week, Terry Moore preached a a very encouraging message to fathers. And we were in uh, Los Angeles, California, Sunday morning in Grace Community Church where John MacArthur pastors. And he said this. That was a great observation. That we spent one day in May 
honoring men and women who have given their lives for our country on Memorial Day. We have to spend 30 days acknowledging the pride of sodomy. Something's not right in our culture. Gay Liberation Manifesto of 1971 says this, equality is not the issue. It's amazing how Satan works. Satan creates a problem, and then after creating the problem, gives a solution. Today, the, the, the problem that Satan is rampantly sowing in America, sexual immorality, because of that unwanted pregnancies, oh, we have a solution, it's women's health care. That's just camouflage for the abortion industry. Satan creates an industry that provides a problem that he offers a worse solution to. The, the Gay Liberation Manifesto of 1971 says equality is never going to be enough for us. What we need is total social revolution, a complete reordering of civilization, including society's most basic institution, the patriarchal society. Now, have no, have no question about what the sexual revolution is about right now, and it's happening at breakneck speed. What's going on around us is shocking, and yet, what is at the heart of it? Satan's desire to undo God's created order of men leading their homes. It's not that this world hates fathers, they just hate the father. And there's a well-strategized and executed ideology in our world. That's why then we have to be strong. We can't come out of the world, nor does the Lord call us out of this world. He prayed for us in John 17 to be in this world. We can't even change this world. You're not going to change this world. There may be some of you who are like, if everybody was a part of this party, Republican party I'm a part of, or... This independent party or this conservative party or this democratic party, we could change the world. But we can't be intimidated by the world. And the Corinthians says we can't accommodate this world. We're not of this world. We are in Christ. And that's good because here's what the Lord says. The Lord is my helper, then whom will I be afraid? What can man do to me? You remember Paul um, preaching in Acts 4. We were learning about this in our Bible study this morning again. Uh, Peter was preaching in Acts 4, not Paul, Peter and John, you know. And they're told, hey, if y'all don't quit preaching, we're going to kill you. I like what Bodie Bauckham said in that text. Bodie Bauckham said, um, they could have easily answered, yeah, you, you tried to kill Jesus. How, how did that work for you? What can man do to me? Jesus said this, because the Pharisees would not openly acknowledge him, why? Because of fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, why they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Be strong, be strong. How can I be strong? I'm gonna give you three ways. Let's write these down. And I just wanna give you some application how to obey this text in the world in which we live. I think it would be an encouragement for us all in our lives and our church. To begin with, know this, to be strong is to realize uh, several things. 
One is that God is our strength and we have him. Verse 28 says, whoever overcomes, I'll give the morning star. I'll give the morning star. What is the morning star? I don't think we need to go outside of Revelation to understand what the morning star is. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, Jesus said, I am the bright morning star. I will give you the morning star, which means that we have Christ. But more than that, <laughs> he has us. We do live in a, a culture that has gone crazy. It's gone sex crazy. How do we live in this culture? Be strong. Be strong? I got to be strong? Yes. By remembering he has you. I love the Getty song. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. So know this, when you're told to be strong by holding fast, that you are being held. Do you remember when your little children had those little tiny hands that would fit in your palm and you could wrap your entire hand around their hand? Do you remember those little hands? And you grab that hand, we're going to walk across the street. And you would say what? Hold on. Did you really mean that if you don't hold on, you are going to get hit by a car? You had that little hand. You aren't going to let them go. Be strong needs to know whom I have and who has me. But there's some application here. Here's some application. And I want to go to this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 8. This will be the last passage of Scripture that I go to. When you build a new house, this is a, this is a code enforcement issue. This is a practical, pragmatic way in which law was given, but a good principle comes from it. When you build a house, Deuteronomy 28, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. In other words, when you build your house, think about the safety of that house. Put a railing around the roof so nobody falls off of it. And you're not then guilty of the blood. Put railings around the roof of your house. This is a good principle for life. What are the railings that we can put around our house? The first one is this, salvation. Verse 26 says, The one who overcomes, who keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations. You can keep the works of Jezebel, or you can keep the works of Christ. How do I keep the works of Christ? Well, the way in which I keep the works of Christ are simple. I put my faith in his work. I put my faith in his provision for my salvation. Do, do you know that every person in the church at Thyatira hearing the message about sexual perversion would have been able to say, but what about us? We've all been immoral, whether in action or in thought, because Jesus said, if you ever look on a woman to lust after her, you've done what? You've committed adultery in your heart. There's no one innocent. What do we do? Think about Paul walking on the aisles of the church at Corinth, looking at the sexual immoral, the homosexual, the effeminate, saying, and such were some of you. 
The great thing about the grace of our Lord is that he offers salvation for anyone who repents and forgiveness of that sin and righteousness that's outside of ourselves, so that we don't overcome by our works, we overcome by his. That's what salvation is. And if you're going to make it into heaven, and you will only make it into heaven this way, by God's good work in you, by God giving you the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, by you receiving righteousness outside of yourself that's foreign from you, that is freely offered through the grace of Jesus and the washing of his blood. You can be saved. This is a guardrail that not only do we need to have our own life, but make sure that our family has our family saved. Our children genuinely converted. Secondly, be separated from this world. Jesus told us that we, again, are not being taken out of this world, but we are to be separated from this world. There's a downward pull in this world. It is constant, isn't it? We've all heard the story of the good woman who required a coachman. Spurgeon tells a story of how three men came to talk to her about driving her coach in the Victorian age. She asked the first one, how far from danger can you stay? And the man said, I can get within yards of danger and never get in trouble. She said, you're not the man for me. The next man, even more arrogantly, said, I can get within inches of danger and never get in trouble. She said, you're not the man for me. And the third man was asked, how close to danger can you drive me? He said, if you please, madam, that is the one thing I've never tried. I've always tried to drive as far from danger as I can, to which the woman said, you are the coachman for me. We need to be separated from this world. Why? Because sin has a downward pull, always has a reason for capitulating or accommodating. This is how the devil works in the world. Sin always offers excuses for us to get involved, so we should stay alert of the danger and stay far away from the danger as we can. This is going to require us in the 21st century, in the year 2022 and beyond here, to make some decisions we didn't normally make. I guess years ago, we didn't have to worry about Disney and Pixar movies so much. Parents are going to have to make a decision as to whether or not their children are actually going to be able to see Buzz Lightyear. And then what kind of conversation comes if they have already seen it? What kind of sports are we going to let our children participate in now? What kind of schools are we going to let them go to? What dorms are they going to stay in? What work environments are we going to be involved in ourselves? What family functions are we going to have to say no to? There are days in that which it is very tempting to accommodate the sexual perversion of our world because it has become so normalized that the spirit of Jezebel is alive and well. Sexual sin wars against the soul, though. It's not like any other sin. Sexual sin leads to all types of problems. It leads to depression and discouragement. It's been said that a woman who has lost her virginity outside of marriage is most depressed the moment after that event than she had ever been in her life. It's especially egregious. That's why sexual sins carry greater criminal sentences and should Sexual sins carry greater wounds and guilt. That's why, look, no amount of legislation and civil moralization of sexual sins will ever take away the shame and guilt of sinning and offending a holy God. 
There are cities in our land that are far, far further down the road than we are, 20 years as, a, as it relates to some of the cities in our nation that are farther down the road with civil unions and, and homosexual marriages and lifestyles that are perverted. And what they have discovered pragmatically is that the, the dysfunction and the confusion and the depression and the suicide rates are so high. by Because the lie of the devil and what he's peddling constantly is nothing more than a way in which to destroy lives. Sexual sins carry greater consequences. They can't be normalized. They should be punished by magistrates. They hurt many and are an offense to God. But thank God they can be forgiven. Thank God for the grace of God. But don't live like the people in Thyatira who are hearing that it's okay to accommodate that sin in your life. Be separate. Thirdly, be secure. You know what the Lord said? I I know where you live. You know what he would say to us? I know where you live. I know the pressures. I know the temptations. I I know what it's like to go to the beach. I know what it's like just to get on a website, an innocent shopping website, to be only confronted by images you, you really shouldn't see. I know what it's like to go to work and hear conversations you shouldn't have to hear. I know the pressure that's on you to normalize with culture. I know that. I know the rejection that you experience when you live holy and righteously in this world. I know those pressures. But but I will give you the morning star. What a joy it must have been for those workers, those women and those men in that church, to hear this letter read. You know, going to work every day, six days a week, early to late, working in a very difficult industry with archaic tools just to put food on the table and wondering, are we going to be able to make ends meet this month? And here, the Lord say to them, I got you. And one day, one day, you're going to rule and you're going to reign with me. It's worth it to live for Jesus. Because we're going to get a reward that is beyond anything any idol could ever promise. We grew up singing this song. Oh, that will be glory for me. Do do y'all know this song? Friends will be there in heaven. Friends will be there that I have loved long ago. Joy like a river around me will flow. Yet just a smile from my Savior and I'll know will be through the ages glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory, will be glory for me. The Lord saying to the church at Thyatira, come out. Come out. Be mine. Be separated. If you are involved in this lifestyle, repent. Repent. You have me. 
and I'm better. And I make every gift better. Sex is not perverse. It is a gift from God. All the good gifts of God are to be enjoyed, and we should be leading the parade of enjoyment of all God's good gifts because they are not ultimate but penultimate. Our God is ultimate, and when we worship Him and desire Him, then all His good gifts are put in right order and to be enjoyed without shame. Hold fast what you have till I come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Lord, it's a very dramatic and strong text. It is a reminder of how good you are, how, God, you have given to us such good and great gifts. Remind us, Lord, of how, God, constantly you're gracious to us. Help us to be discerning of when the gifts you give us are being perverted, twisted, and turned into something that they shouldn't. In Jesus' name, amen.